We are in our final two weeks of our Summer in Rome teaching series. It's been a long summer, but we are very grateful for how God has moved across this book and this letter, this dense read, this complex letter that Paul wrote to a Roman church and a set of Roman house churches in particular in the first century. And we are intentional about choosing a New Testament book because, as we've said before, we are in the middle of what's referred to as ordinary time in the liturgical church calendar. The time between Pentecost to Advent is referred to as ordinary time. And it's looking at the the span of time between the um, ascension of Jesus, the birth of the church, and then the second coming of Christ. And it's a time for us to recognize how deeply we are formed by the very small practices of our everyday life. Washing the dishes, doing our laundry, going to school, going to work, going to the gym, meeting with friends, in the scriptures. There's these ordinary things that we do that shape us and form us. And we have been intentional about spending time in the New Testament during this liturgical season. Uh, It's a very important, I think, practice for us to be aware of how time functions. We as humans seem to believe that time revolves around us. (laughs) But that actually can create a great pressure to perform and to succeed. But the reality is time, first of all, is not linear as much as we think it is. Time is much more circular in nature. And the liturgical calendar is circular, and it helps us anchor ourselves and our story in the story of Jesus, in the story of Jesus. And so we have been sitting in Romans all summer long. Now, as Jay mentioned briefly, we are beginning our vision series for 2022 in two weeks after we wrap up Romans next week. Jordan's going to be wrapping things up for us next week, which I'm really excited about. But in two weeks, we launch into the Stages of the Journey teaching series. And in this teaching series, we want to be able to ask the question of what stage of discipleship am I in? Where am I in this journey? Our vision series is kind of following along the language of Robert Mulholland's uh, famous book that's called An Invitation to a Journey. And if that journey is all about moving toward complete maturity in the language of Colossians 1, as though we are moving from child to adult, then we have to ask the question, all of us as as individuals, where am I on this journey? And so we will put language to and examine five different stages together beginning in two weeks. So we'll go from this dense book of Romans to super practical teaching. So hopefully you're excited about that here in a couple of weeks. So That is where we are heading in just uh, the next season as a community. Let's go ahead and jump into the scriptures this morning, though. Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be at. Go ahead and pull out the Bible, the scriptures, if you have a printed copy. I hope you have a printed copy of the scriptures. If you don't have one, I will give you one for free. We all like free things, do we not? Romans 15. Some of you are like, I didn't know that Romans went past 11 chapters. I never got past the first 11 chapters. It's that dense. But there are more. 12 through 16 is the the practical side of Romans. So Romans 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. 
For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that the, through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Someone say hope. Hope. We have hope. Eternal hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify, somebody say glorify, glorify, come on, glorify, somebody. Some of you are like, I grew up Presbyterian, I don't get very loud. Um, That's okay, some of you grew up Pentecostal and you're like, glorify, (laughs) yes, Lord, (laughs) So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. I read this past week that one New Testament scholar calls the very first 13 verses of Romans chapter 15, Paul's graduating address for readers going through Christ College. I love that language. That Romans 12 through 16 is like Paul giving this uh, instruction around Jesus and the gospel and what it means to be a part of the family of God as a community. And he refers to it as Christ College. And in Romans 15, Paul expounds on what restored life together actually looks like and what it looks like in community. Now, last week in Romans chapter 14, Paul was zooming in on a very specific issue, like we talked about with food laws and sacred day observance. But in 15, Paul is zooming out and providing more of a blueprint for what life together is to actually look like. What is community supposed to look like? What are we to look like in community? What does a restored group of people look like living together? And my hope for today, for all of us, is very simple, especially given that we just launched back into house churches, which again, as Jay mentioned, if you're not part of a house church, it is important that you get plugged in because that is where we practice the way of Jesus together. As we've done this, my hope today is to be able to get from Paul a robust vision for what life together looks like, a robust vision of what community is to look like, and how we are able to achieve such a life together. So we're looking at what life together is to look like, and then we're going to look at how we are able to make that happen or achieve that. In other words, what we are building as well as the tools needed for such construction. We need to know know what we are actually building and the tools needed for such construction. Now, have you ever, anybody DIY, like you're big into DIY, like you love doing DIY stuff? Anybody, like four of you, you're like, I'm going to buy my stuff. I'm not doing anything DIY. (laughs) Now, for me, maybe for you who do, those of you who do DIY, you see certain things out and about, maybe uh, someone's kitchen, you go to their home, you see their kitchen, you're like, yo, how did you do that? Or you see their yard, you're like, how did you do that? You see certain things have been built, and you're like, how did you do that? You want it, you know what it is that you want, but you don't necessarily know how to get there. And sometimes that is our greatest struggle in the church, is that we maybe have an idea of what, but we don't always know how. So our goal today is not to just look at the what, but also the how as a community. 
And Paul has a very specific word for this vision of life that he has in, in store or is instructing in terms of the person of Jesus. Paul looks at this idea all throughout these four or five chapters towards the end of Romans. And it's important that we must start with language. Language matters. The words we use matter. How we use words matters. And Paul's not just thinking about this generic sense of community, but rather a type of community. We're not just seeking a generic sense of community as the people of God, but a type of community, a way in which the community is to operate and function. Most all of us in this room want community. We all want community. But often we aren't able to articulate what type of community. More specifically, we have an idea of what we want, but we don't necessarily know what we need. I hear it all the time. I am looking for community. And I'm here to tell you, community is not something that you go on a search to find. It is something that you participate in. And for us, we need to be able to recognize what type of community that we are meant to participate in and how it is meant to look. Because think about it. We are all part of very different types of communities, even throughout our week, throughout our life. For instance, your work community, your school community, the city that we live in is a community, our church community, your neighborhood community. Some aspects of community we see are strong. Some are very loose. Some communities we are part of are very healthy, and some are highly dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional. So, how do you know the difference between healthy community and dysfunctional community? How do you know the difference between a strong sense of community and a loose sense of community? We all want it, but how do we know the difference between healthy and unhealthy? Just imagine with me for a second showing up to your annual physical or your annual doctor's appointment. And you go in and you're there for like an hour and they do all the things and the doctor comes in and says, you're good. You're healthy. And that's all. That's all he says. That's all she says. And you're like, well, that's great. That's awesome. But uh, how, how do you know? How do you know I'm healthy? How do you know that I'm well? Well, you just, you just are. You're good, you know? That's not what happens. We are given markers for health. We have an awareness of what healthy looks like. It's important. A doctor is never going to say you're good or you're healthy because we need to know how that is so. What does healthy actually look like? What, what about my life and my physical body is, is healthy or unhealthy? And so we want to be able to ask that question this morning. How do we know? Or what does healthy community look like? What does life together look like? And so what Paul does here is he's expounding upon more pragmatically what healthy community is to look like, what life together is to look like. And he has one in particular word for this vision for community, functionally. And it is the word 
harmony. Harmony. This is Paul's vision of what community is to look like or life together. It is one of harmony. Harmony is the picture in which we are looking at. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Paul gives the imperative, live in harmony with one another. Or another translation says, be of the same mind. When we are talking about a vision for life together in community, we must look at harmony as ultimate. And Paul, as he is pastoring this community and providing an ethical vision for living, he uses this word harmony as the focal point. And he comes back to this very same vision in Romans chapter 15. This time as a prayer. This is only the second time we've seen Paul pray in the whole letter. The first time was in chapter 1. And now at the very end of this letter, in this final commencement speech that he's given for those going through Christ College, he is praying and giving a petition that they might have a, say, the same attitude of mind or that they might be a community of harmony. In Romans 15.5, here is his petition. May the God who gives, key word there, God is a giver, gives endurance and encouragement, give you the same attitude of mind. Now, the Greek word is the same word used in Romans 12, 16 for harmony. So it could literally read this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the harmony toward each other that Christ Jesus had. And it's interesting because he is bookending the letter with the gospel. The gospel is the implication. It's the why. But then he bookends this section, Romans 12 through 16 roughly, and really the instruction goes to 15, 13. He bookends this section on life together around harmony. Because he starts in Romans 12, And then he ends in Romans 15 with his commencement speech, and he bookends it with harmony as the vision for life together. Being of the same mind. Paul's vision, friends, for life together and community in Christ is one of harmony. It's one of harmony. Other words that could be used to help provide some synonyms for us could be peace, alignment, interdependence, or a word I really appreciate, mutuality. Mutuality. Or being one accord in alignment together. Here's what Michael Bird has to say, who, as you guys have come to realize, is a scholar who I enjoy. The Roman Christians, diverse as they are, and they are. You're talking about two groups of people that have been at odds with each other for centuries. Gentiles and Jews, must join in a common life together, in work and witness and fellowship and hardship and intentionally embody the values of righteousness, peace, joy, and above all, love. The Roman community's ethos will then be defined by mutuality rather than by mistrust and represent a unified front to a hostile environment. Hostility in society is not just a modern idea. It's existed since the beginning of time. 
existing in first century Rome. And Paul is saying that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians must practice mutuality and harmony. Now, in our time and in our moment, we are experiencing across the modern West and even within the church, definitely within the church and especially in society, the antithesis or the opposite of community and harmony. This being what sociologists call the atomization of society or the fragmentation of society. Motivated by radical individualism. It's the water we live in. It's the water in which we swim. There is a lack of social connectedness in our society catalyzed with the rise of quote-unquote digital community. What used to be in-person community and literally is part of the definition of community has turned into digital community, which in my estimation is actually a paradox. And it's a conflict in terms. For centuries, there have been sociological tensions between an individual and the group, the person and the community. Eastern parts of the world tend to put the weight on the group, the collective whole. But Westerners, especially of European descent, put the weight on the individual. In fact, some scholars call the United States of America a social experiment in individualism. Where the fundamental pursuit of the group is the freedom of the individual which, as you can expect, will ultimately lead to atomization or fragmentation. Because if the point of the group is for there to be no common group, then ultimately the group tears apart. It undermines itself. The U.S. is a social experiment in individualism. And if the ultimate point is for there to be no common group, but rather just this autonomous individual, then ultimately the group or society tears apart and fractures. Here's a definition for atomization. The tendency for society to be made up of a collection of self-interested and largely self-sufficient individuals operating as separate atoms. And here are the implications of this vision of atomization and individualism at the core. As individuality gains clarity, relationships begin to disintegrate and social bonds deteriorate. Individuality increases, but relationships begin to disintegrate and deteriorate. When relationships begin to disintegrate, Common ideas, goals, pursuits, and even ethics are dissolved into mere personal and subjective opinions. In the mid-19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French philosopher, wrote a very well-known book called Democracy in America. Here's what he has to say about individualism. Without common ideas, there is no common action. Without common action, men still exist, but a social body does not. Thus, in order that there be a society, be society, and all the more that this society prosper, 
It is necessary that all the minds of the citizens always be brought together and held together by some principal ideas. Tocqueville argued that religion was actually the key for a balance of the free individual and group systems. And he argued that if individualism not kept in check could lead to the quote-unquote abolition of humanity, the abolition of humanity, if individualism is not kept in check, we are heading towards the abolition of humanity. Why? Because the ultimate pursuit, the ultimate definition, the ultimate set of desires is meant to be fulfilled by one single individual, yourself ultimately leading to deterioration and atomization. And so when atomization happens, when fragmentation in society happens, and we can be honest, our society is fragmenting. It's fragmenting across party lines politically. It's fragmenting culturally. It's fragmenting socially, digitally. It's fragmenting all over the place. And when atomization happens, what you end up with is 329 million bumper cars Individuals that though live in society together are angry, confused, and utterly lonely. Bumper cars are fun for about 30 minutes, but imagine that being your life. And atomization is essentially like social bumper cars, bumping into one another constantly, producing Angry individuals that are confused and utterly lonely living in an echo chamber or some some sort of vacuum. In 2008, the New York Times journalist Hal Nowitzki ran this social experiment, which I thought was deeply interesting, where at the very beginning of Facebook, how many of you guys have Facebook like in the early days? Like a long time ago, you were on Facebook. Yes, Totally. Um, Anybody have MySpace, honestly, back in the day? Come on, MySpace. Can we just say MySpace needs to come back? We need MySpace back. Seriously, the world was a better place when MySpace was running the streets. But this journalist ran this social experiment, and he decided he was going to host a party through Facebook at a bar, okay, at this local dive bar. He was going to post an event on Facebook. And in this event, 15 people said that they were coming. 60 said maybe. We all know how Facebook events go, right? And what ended up happening is he shows up that night. One person's there. And it's a friend of a friend who essentially said, I had nothing else to do tonight. And I thought I'd come. They have some small talk for a few moments. And by the end of the night... He comes to this realization, and he quotes, 700 friends, and I was drinking alone that night. That is atomization. We call that community. We we call these individuals friends. 700 friends, and I was drinking alone that night. Did you know 40% of American adults have Zero confidants. Zero. None. The most common pathology, according to Vivek Murphy, who's a former Surgeon General, was not just some sort of mental health, mental illness. 
but actually loneliness. Americans are statistically some of the loneliest people in the world, and it is the youngest generation that is the loneliest. The average American in recent times had on average 3.5 friends, which I think is so funny. Like, who has half a friend? (laughs) Anybody got half a friend? I would love to meet them, you know. (laughs) 3.5 friends. Now, it is 1.5. of millennials say they have zero friends. If you're a millennial in here, one in five of you would say, I have zero friends. In 1990, only 3% of the entire population said they had no close friends, and it has quadrupled as an entire nation since then. Loneliness is at epidemic levels in our society. And I believe it's because individualism is at the root of it all. Individualism sounds great, but it is a hollow facade that ends up leaving people utterly lonely. Historically, within sociology, they found basically four kind of key key ideas, four things that people across the spectrum really need to experience contentment and happiness. The first thing is close confidants and friends. The second thing is family. The third thing is meaningful work or vocation. And the fourth is actually a theology or a philosophy specifically how to navigate suffering. And did you know that American culture is the least equipped to navigate suffering than any culture in the world? You need these four things, but individualism undermines them all. Undermines them all. I have an infographic for you guys to see because I'm visual. This is helpful for me to see the difference between atomization and harmony. This is what atomization looks like. We are all these little dots going about our life. And there may be these little faux communities we are a part of that really are formed out of common interests rather than some sort of objective reality that are very fluid communities, okay? And this is what life looks like, constantly moving around. There really is no concrete set of commonality for us as a society. It's fractured across all different types of lines. But then, harmony looks much more like this next graphic on the screen. You got it for me, Mo? There we go. A network. A network of individuals around an objective reality, a transcendent reality that is... Jesus, the cross, the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about. Atomization is fragmentation. But harmony is wholeness. This is a network. This is what life is supposed to look like. But that previous picture is the life we live in. And we all swim in those waters. We're all formed by that vision. You and I are formed by individualism. But as we've said before, if it is so grand then why qualitatively are we more worse off than we were 100 years ago? Talk to any psychologist, any therapist. I mean, think about how many people are on antidepressants. Anxiety is through the roof. Loneliness is out 
courageous. And it's all come in this moment in post-modernity around individualism, the rise of the self. You make the calls. You call the shots. And you're like, that sounds amazing. Yes. And then you hit a roadblock. And are there aspects of the community that need to be reformed and changed? Absolutely, at a, at a systematic level, at a group level. But, you know, systems can absorb anxiety. Systems can absorb pressure that individuals can't on their own. This is the moment we live in, and Paul is subverting it all and saying we are called to harmony, to be a network of loving people doing life together, oriented around the cross of Christ, which at the center of it is actually the opposite of individualism. It is the denial of self. And if we trust Jesus, he says the only way to experience life and abundance and fullness and flourishing is by giving up your life. Test him. Test him. Because he does say quite articulately that if you are to hold on to your life, you will lose it. You will go utterly insane. Utterly insane. So, if harmony and mutuality is the goal, then what does that look like in practice? Now we come back to the scriptures. So we did a little kind of like sociology 101. Now we're back into the scriptures, all right? So what does harmony look like in practice? I have three things, super practical, linear progression, all right? We're going one, two, three, all right? You got it? This is easy note-taking, okay? You can look in your bulletin. I'm just kidding. We don't have bulletins. (laughs) Praise God, someone. I'm scarred because when I was a child on on Saturday nights, I had to go to Office Depot with my dad and sit in the living room and fold those darn little bulletins. It's the biggest waste of time. Oh, my gosh. The amount of debate that went about what cover should be on the front, like what design. I'm like, no one cares. I just want to talk about Jesus and the scriptures. I don't know, whatever. I need to go to therapy some more. Um, yeah, see, I'm on a journey too, guys. I'm in process. Three things, okay? Three things for what mutuality looks like in practice. Here's the first thing. Serving over preferring. I'm not trying to be a cheesy pastor and giving like rhymes, but it helps, I think. Serving, a posture of serving over preferring. Let me give an example. How often do you say, how can I versus when can we? How can I? How can I help? How can I serve? You know, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to be honest, when we call this a serve us, it should be really spelled S-E-R-V-E-U-S. Serve us rather than service. This is a service to God in some ways. Serving over preferring, how can I, versus when can we? I don't know how many times I've had conversations. When can we do X, Y, Z? I'm like, you want to lead it? No. We live in a society that approaches the gathering, approaches the church as though it is some vending machine or some kind of product that we purchase. I've heard the language of church shopping for way too long. The church is not a product. The church is an eternal community that happens to gather weekly and live on mission together. We are to have a posture of serving 
in the local church and beyond. That's why I'm so grateful for everyone that participates in serving, not just in our city and all the different things we're partnered with and organizations we do, do work with, but in the Sunday morning gathering, it takes so many hands. Kids, I mean, there are people who are slaving away right now with kids. Seriously. And Megan Pakel does a killer job leading that. We need more people and kids serving, giving of your time, okay? People who work behind the sound every single week, who do stuff with ProPresenter, who do stuff with the camera, who do all these things, the worship team here every single week. People who lead house churches. Serving matters. People do stuff with photography. Jess and Chad Curran do photography stuff every single week. I bet you didn't know. Serve. It's the posture of the kingdom. It's the posture of Jesus. Our serving has to outweigh our preferences. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I love that Paul is using this ought language as though this is, this is supposed to be the norm. We ought. We are not to please ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Because here's what usually happens. Really quick. You get connected to a house church. You're like, this is it. I'm going to find deep, meaningful community. And then you realize that everyone in the group is just as broken and messed up as you are. And you get to a point in the, in the, in the journey, and you get real disillusioned. You're like, this group's not it. It's not the one for me. So you go back to the beginning. Start all over again. I found the community. Yay. You get in. Oh, man, they're broken too. More disillusionment. And you go back to the beginning again. How many times have you done that journey? Honestly. Because here's the, if you get past the disillusionment and recognize, look, we're just broken people on a journey, offering ourselves to each other and to God. You get past that, you will experience the fullness of authentic community. I promise you that. But remember, Community is not something that you can simply just play seek and find with. You have to create it and cultivate it around something that is strong and solid. But you have to be in a posture of serving, offering yourself to one another. Some of the most loneliest, the loneliest people I know are some of the most selfish individuals on the planet. Because to experience meaning in community, you actually have to give of yourself. And to love someone, spouses, you guys know this. To love your spouse, you have to have a level of restraint or you can't experience love. Same with friendships and same with community. Here's the second thing. Growing over stagnating. Okay, growing over stagnating. Verse two, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Again, here's this language from Paul, should. He's using ought and should as though these ideas are the norm. The the message version or the paraphrase says, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Ken Shigematsu in his book, God in My Everything, says, it's hard to overestimate how the presence of a fellow pilgrim in our lives can keep us walking in the way of Christ. We have to build each other up, train each other, edify. To edify means to teach or to train, to build up. And here's the deal. Quick note. 
We don't build the kingdom. We build each other in it. We don't build the kingdom. We build each other in it as though we are a house. This is a vision of what it looks like to grow together. And listen, here's the deal, friends. My fear is that many of us aren't honest enough with each other in our growth. My fear is that many of us operate passively when it comes to walking with each other in a very neutral sense, that we aren't willing to call stuff out in each other's lives. But Paul just says that we need to be able to do this for the good of the other meaning that there is some sort of goodness that's out there that we should be walking towards. And if a friend or a brother or sister in Christ is not walking in that, it's not loving for you not to say anything. That's passive. That's being very passive and neutral. That's not love. That's neutrality. Okay? And we are meant to walk in love with one another. We need to be honest with those who are walking away. If we're walking away, or straying, or struggling. I need people in my life who can like, look at me and say, bro, get your act together. I love you. Now, I need relational capital. I need trust. But I need you to pull me up and look me in the eyes and get your act together. I watched an interesting documentary last night on Netflix about Tony Parker, who is probably the greatest French basketball player ever to exist. And there was a moment where he's playing for the French national team. Um, and they're playing against Spain, their like, biggest rival. And they're getting crushed in the first half. And he goes in there at halftime, and he gives them this whale of a speech. Like, y'all need to figure it out. We got to figure it out. And he's going in on them. Because here's the problem. We don't function often like a team. We just function like attendees showing up at an event on a Sunday morning. But we are a team with a common mission and a common goal. And we need to be honest with each other if we're going to move in the same direction and to live in harmony. I'm not saying just go in on someone. No, there was relational capital there, practice and hours of time together. We need to be honest with each other. It's, it's really, in some cases, it's a matter of life and death. It really is. So, growing versus stagnating. The third thing is inviting over-isolating. Verse 7 says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, the, the phrase accept one another can also mean to take as one's companion or to grant access to one's heart. How many people in your life have access to your heart? Whoa, that honestly, that's a scary place. It's a scary place for us as individuals, let alone people we're close with. But he's saying, mm, you need to grant access to your heart. It also can mean take by the hand to lead or to invite into one's home or to eat with. The idea of invitation is to say, let's do life together. I want you to see all of me, not a portrayal of me. I want you to see all of it. Let's do life together, side by side, arm in arm. I'm inviting you into this journey. It's an invitation to a journey. And we're saying, come along. Let's go together. This is what this is all about, guys. It's an invitation. 
We aren't to isolate ourselves. What I've noticed, honestly, is that people who are going through a lot, the natural tendency is to move into isolation. And an isolated man, the psalm says, or Proverbs, I'm not sure which one, you can check me. An isolated man seeks his own desires. This is why being in community is so deeply important. And vulnerability is important. Authenticity is important. Confession is a practice we have lost. Confession is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Just like baptism, just like communion. We need to practice confession so that we might be healed, like James says. When was the last time you confessed some sin to a brother or sister that you were in a deep relationship with? I'm not just talking about I'm struggling. That's not confession. That's just the human journey. And we all struggling. All of us. When was the last time you, spe- you said specifically, this is something? Because here's the deal. Confession is offensive towards the enemy. It, confession is like going at the enemy with a sword. You got some people. Let me tell you something. There are things in this room right now that have never been brought out of your heart. There is dark spaces in your heart where the light's never been turned on. And you're miserable and you're walking in shame and guilt. You've got to flip the light on. But you need someone there with you to hold your hand. We need that because if we're not careful, we live in denial. Humans are complex individuals. And it's easy for us to only speak of what we want to be there rather than what actually is. So we, we need to invite people into this posture of vulnerability. The psychiatrist M. Scott Peck says there can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace or harmony and ultimately no life without community. We must practice vulnerability. This is, again, why house churches are so very important. It's a space to practice vulnerability. So this is what harmony looks like. Serving, growing, and inviting. Question then remains as we begin to close. How then do we achieve this harmony? How then do we achieve these three ideals of community. I have five very simple ways, and it's, they're all S words, so it's going to be easy for you to memorize. So when I ask you in a month from now, hey, what did we talk about on that Sunday? And you're like, well, I got my notes. Here they are. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, way to go. That's awesome. Here we go. Five ways, I think, based on this passage, that we can achieve Harmony. Because here's the deal. As Willie James Jennings has said, the single greatest challenge for disciples of Jesus is to imagine and then enact actual life together. It's our single greatest challenge. So how do we do it? We need to know how. Here we go. Here's the first way. We need to see how Jesus did it. See how Jesus did it. We need to watch Jesus. Verse 3 and verse 7, if we go back, Romans 15, verse 3 says, For even Christ did not please himself. Verse 7, accept one another, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. In other words, Christ, Jesus, is the pattern. He is the model of what it means to be whole and complete as a human 
And it shows us, again, Paul has Jesus as this centerpiece of all that he is writing. There's a Christological center in Paul's writing. And here's the deal, guys. We are not here just because of community. We are here because of Christ Jesus. This baptism is because of Christ Jesus. If you're here today to support someone who's getting into this, it's because of Christ Jesus. It's not because of them. It's because of who Christ is and what he has done. And they're saying, yeah, I believe in it. I'm trusting with my life that Jesus is who he said he is. And I'm following him with every bit of who I am, mind, spirit, and body. We have to follow this model or this paradigm. Because here's the deal. When community becomes your Christ, you will inevitably be set up for failure and disappointment. And and there's plenty of people that we know who are not part of the church anymore. And I believe in conversations I've had, it's because the church failed them in their language. But at the same time, the church was their Christ. And the church is going to fail you. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. We will fail one another. But Christ is what binds us together. And if we're humble enough, we can say, my bad. But we live in a culture that doesn't want to do that. I'm going to tell you, it's easy for us to do this. But as the old adage goes, when you're pointing one finger, you got four looking right back at you. Okay? So we need to follow this model to see how Jesus actually did it. And, and Paul is reminding the church in Rome the life model of Christ, or what the mystic Thomas Akempis called the imitation of Christ. Here's the second thing. We need to submit to the scriptures. In particular, the story of God. Look at verse 4 in Romans 15. For everything, keyword, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Paul's got a fantastic hermeneutic. He's saying that all the scriptures, though they were written in a specific time in a specific place, They were written also for us, to teach us, to provide encouragement and hope. We have to submit to the scriptures and to the story of God. The third thing here is that we must, this is deeply important, stay in community. Stay. I heard a story this past week of a bunch of married couples hanging out together, doing some kind of, I don't know, retreat or something. And they're going around, they're like, what's the, like, what's the, What's the one piece of advice you could give in terms of marriage? And they get to one dude, and he literally just says, uh, stay. Dude, that's some profound philosophy. Stay. Don't be doing all this hopping around stuff. You're not going to find community you're hopping around. You got to stay. You got to stay in community. Times get tough. You got to grow some, some thick skin. Stay in community. If you get a chance, you need to talk to Cat Lyons. Cat, raise your hand. Come on, Cat, raise your hand. There's Cat. Cat spent like seven years on the mission field in China. You want to talk about robust vision for community? Talk to her about it. We don't have a clue. We have to stay. We have to fight through relational tensions. We have to fight through the struggle. We have to fight to stay. We have to be patient, 
Verse five, may the God who gives endurance or could also be translated as patience here. We need patience in community. And here's the deal. Intimacy resides only in the safety of commitment. You will not experience intimacy apart from commitment. This is why hookup culture is ravishing society. There's intimacy, no commitment. We need intimacy, not just between individuals, but communally. And intimacy requires commitment. Because intimacy without commitment produces wounds and heartache. And it rips the heart apart. We need intimacy, but it only resides in the safety of commitment. And I realize some of you have been hurt before, and that's okay. But we want to create space to process through hurt. But you need commitment. We need commitment in order to experience intimacy. It's just the fact of the matter. Joe Saxton says this, covenant community becomes the context for covenant love in action, the healing of broken identities, and the restoration of voice and purpose. You know what covenant means? A promise. And this is a covenantal community, a promised community. Two more and I'm done. We need to be able to speak life into community or to encourage. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, we need to encourage one another verbally. Open up your mouth. Give some encouragement to someone. Start small. Hey, I like your outfit. It looks great. It's a good start. Okay? I'm proud of you. Give some encouragement. Way to go. We need people to speak life into community. You know what destroys life in community? Gossip. Divisiveness. Division. Speak life into community. If there is a tension with someone else, you come to me and you're like, I have a lot of tension with this person. I'm going to look at you and say, go talk to them, honey. I'm not the person. Go talk to them. If you need to process, I get it. But only to experience reconciliation. Um, The only way you can experience reconciliation is by going to that person. Speak life. And the last thing here is to seek the same vision. The same vision. The same purpose. This is the essence of harmony. The very essence of harmony is to seek the same vision. Verse 5 and 6. This is in the New American Standard. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Remember, the Christological emphasis. So that with one purpose or one vision and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ without a singular purpose and singular vision and a singular voice, without harmony. We can't, as a community, glorify God. And we are meant to bring God glory and to radiate his glory. That is our ultimate aim. Listen, we are not simply here to form connections, but to accomplish something great together. We are not here just to form new friends, but to accomplish something great together that binds us. I'm going to get the band to come up. We'll be moving into our baptism here in just a second. But I want us to know that harmony is not necessarily singing the same note, but rather the same song. 
Harmony is not about singing the same note, but the same song. In music, harmony, and I'm not even a music person, but I just Googled the definition last night, okay? Harmony is the process by which individual sounds are joined together or composed into whole units or compositions, i.e. one voice. You ever heard a group or a choir sing together and they have all these different notes? They're singing harmony and it sounds like one voice. It's the essence of harmony. It's the essence of what we're after. It's to be singing the same song and to sound like one voice. In other words, as Paul is sharing, even with our cultural and ethnic differences as they're experiencing here in Rome, we are to be singing the exact same song in a different language maybe a different note, but it's the same song. It is only then that we are able to glorify the Lord Jesus. So we need to see, we need to submit, we need to stay, we need to speak life, and we need to seek the same vision together. This is what life in harmony looks like to be singing the same song, to sound like one common voice. And did you know that one of the original hymns of the early church rang of this very call of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It's called the Christ hymn. And in one voice, I want us to be able to read this aloud together as an embodied example of harmony and of being in one accord. So let's look to the screen and we're going to read this all together. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what harmony looks like. And can you imagine in the the first century of the church sitting in a little apartment crammed together 20 of you in Rome And at the very end of this reading, as a community, you sing those lyrics. We're after harmony. And one of the ways in which we stand together is in this sacrament of baptism. As a community, arm in arm. I'm going to pray. And we're going to begin moving into our time of baptism. We're going to celebrate together.